Hey everyone, I am excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The book of Esther is a mysterious one. As written, it is a book with many contradictions. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within, historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival, annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? It is one of the only books that Joseph Smith made no corrections to, although he considered it to be historical. How is any of this possible? Esther reads as an eyewitness account, but then struggles with the simple, logical issues and frequently contradicts itself in some very strange ways. How come? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions. Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction. And in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do, and how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do when she really puts her mind to it. It also might make an incredible Mother's Day gift for the ladies in your life. Happy Mother's Day. This is the Gospel Feast Podcast for those that need a little meat after the milk. It's time to feast on the Word. Welcome back to our Feast on the Book of Jonah. We concluded our last podcast with an unanswered question, which we want to explore now together in greater detail. Having journeyed to the land of the dead and having lived to tell the tale, the prophet Jonah did something that very few men can claim, return to life with the knowledge of what the world of the dead is like. He only escaped when his name was spoken in the holy temple. We explored how all ancient cultures connected the world of the dead with the sea. Other than his insight that he was trapped in the earth's watery prison, with no escape but through the holy temple, he did give us one additional insight. Jonah 2.8 They that speak lying vanities forsake their own mercy. You know, Peter, I do think that would be a throwaway phrase, were it not for the fact that you and I are scholars. We believe that these few writings are holy and holy writ, and that means something. We throw nothing away when we feast at the Lord's table. Thus, this is important. 
Jonah here is giving us a clue as to his experience in the world of the dead. Apparently, it is a place where liars abandon their only hope for mercy. Now, where have Latter-day Saints heard that before? Perhaps of all the visions recorded by ancient prophets, arguably the greatest is the vision of the Tree of Life, given to Father Lehi. This particular vision is unique because we not only have the vision recorded as a first-person experience from Lehi himself, but we also have a detailed explanation of the vision by a second first-hand witness, his prophet's son, Nephi. You will recall the story. Nephi and his friends and family fled Jerusalem into the wilderness to escape the coming captivity of Babylon, the same that would bring the boy Daniel into servitude in Nebuchadnezzar's court. It was here that the Lord prepared to take them to the shores of the Promised Land, a place where the family of Lehi could build up a new civilization and enjoy the kind of freedom that few have ever enjoyed. Safe from presidents and kings, popes and priests, taxmen, lawyers, and corrupt judges, the children of Lehi would have the chance to live as God intended men to live, free, with dominion over their own lives and their own land. Their only real enemy would be themselves, and the evil machinations of that old serpent, who is always quick to exploit whatever bad egg, black sheep, or human frailty he can, to enslave and destroy our peace. Men are by nature weak, and so envy, covetousness, discontentment, and contention are quick to fill our hearts. It is sad, but true, that once Satan gets a hold of a human heart, he quickly uses hatred to rule over us with blood and horror. The Lord's goodness can be seen in his careful warnings ahead of time. He has never left man without a heavenly heads-up before a satanic event. Lehi's vision here would serve as just that sort of warning with an entire continent, both anciently and in modern times. The family of Lehi had not been free for very long when it became clear that the two eldest brothers, Laman and Lemuel, were going to be the black sheep in the flock of the Book of Mormon. Like Cain of old, they loved Satan's pettiness more than the teachings of Jesus Christ. They were particularly jealous of the natural goodness of their younger brother Nephi. It was into this setting that one night their mutual father Lehi had a peculiar dream. It became known as the vision of the Tree of Life. Here it stands in Lehi's own words. 1 Nephi 8.2 Behold, I have dreamed a dream, or in other words, I have seen a vision. And behold, because of the thing which I have seen, I have reason to rejoice in the Lord because of Nephi and also of Sam. For I have reason to suppose that they, and also many of their seed, will be saved. But behold, Laman and Lemuel, I fear exceedingly because of you. For behold, methought I saw in my dream a dark and dreary wilderness. And it came to pass that I saw a man, and he was dressed in a white robe, and he came and stood before me. And it came to pass that he spake unto me, and bade me follow him. And it came to pass that as I followed him, I beheld myself that I was in a dark and dreary waste. And after I had traveled for the space of many hours in darkness, I began to pray unto the Lord that he would have mercy on me, according to the multitude of his tender mercies. And it came to pass, after I had prayed unto the Lord, I beheld a large and spacious field. And it came to pass that I beheld a tree, whose fruit was desirable to make one happy. And it came to pass that I did go forth and partake of the fruit thereof, and I beheld that it was most sweet, above all that I ever before tasted. Yea, and I beheld that the fruit thereof was white, to exceed all the whiteness that I had ever seen. 
And as I partook of the fruit thereof, it filled my soul with exceedingly great joy. Wherefore, I began to be desirous that my family should partake of it also, for I knew that it was desirable above all other fruit. And as I cast my eyes round about, that perhaps I might discover my family also, I beheld a river of water, and it ran along, and it was near the tree of which I was partaking the fruit. And I looked to behold from whence it came, and I saw the head thereof a little way off, and at the head thereof I beheld your mother Sariah, and Sam, and Nephi, and they stood as if they knew not whither they should go. And it came to pass that I beckoned unto them, and I also did say unto them with a loud voice that they should come unto me, and partake of the fruit, which was desirable above all other fruit. And it came to pass that they did come unto me, and partake of the fruit also. And it came to pass that I was desirous that Laman and Lemuel should come and partake of the fruit also. Wherefore I cast mine eyes towards the head of the river, that perhaps I might see them. And it came to pass that I saw them, but they would not come unto me, and partake of the fruit. And I beheld a rod of iron, and it extended along the bank of the river, and led to the tree by which I stood. And I also beheld a straight and narrow path, which came along by the rod of iron, even to the tree by which I stood, and it also led by the head of the fountain unto a large and spacious field, as if it had been a world. And I saw numberless concourses of people, many of whom were pressing forward, that they might obtain the path which led unto the tree by which I stood. And it came to pass that they did come forth, and commence in the path which led to the tree. And it came to pass that there arose a mist of darkness, yea, even an exceedingly great mist of darkness, insomuch that they who had commenced in the path did lose their way, that they wandered off and were lost. And it came to pass that I beheld others pressing forward, and they came forth and caught hold of the end of the rod of iron, and they did press forward through the mist of darkness, clinging to the rod of iron, even until they did come forth and partake of the fruit of the tree. And after they had partaken of the fruit of the tree, they did cast their eyes about, as if they were ashamed. And I also cast my eyes round about, and behold, on the other side of the river of water, a great and spacious building. And it stood, as it were, in the air, high above the earth. And it was filled with people, both old and young, both male and female. And their manner of dress was exceedingly fine, and they were in the attitude of mocking and pointing their fingers towards those who had come at and were partaking of the fruit. And after they had tasted of the fruit, they were ashamed, because of those that were scoffing at them, and they fell away into forbidden paths and were lost. Nephi, Lehi's son, is our narrator through this vision. He would summarize this family council meeting thusly. And now I, Nephi, do not speak all the words of my father. But, to be short in writing, behold, he saw other multitudes pressing forward, and they came and caught a hold of the end of the rod of iron. And they did press their way forward, continually holding fast to the rod of iron, until they came forth and fell down and partook of the fruit of the tree. And he also saw other multitudes feeling their way toward that great and spacious building. And it came to pass that many were drowned in the depths of the fountain, and many were lost from his view, wandering in strange roads. And great was the multitude that did enter into that strange building. And after they did enter into that building, they did point the finger of scorn at me, and those that were partaking of the fruit also. But we heeded them not.
These are the words of my Father. This astounding vision is interesting on many levels. As many questions as you and I may have regarding its particular meanings, the children of Lehi had more questions. They wanted to know exactly what God was trying to tell them. Fortunately for us and them, Nephi remembered a heavenly truth. God will never give a symbol, parable, or vision to the children of men without also holding himself responsible for its correct interpretation. Nephi went to the Lord in humility and asked for an explanation. It was given and recorded in great length, making up what is now called 1 Nephi chapters 11 through 16. This amazing explanation of Lehi's vision is clear enough to stand on its own. It is seriously worth reading again. After Nephi received his answer as to the proper interpretation of his father's dream, his brothers, who had been deeply disturbed by it all, went to Nephi to ask him about it. Nephi answered all of their questions, but there is one in particular that we want to explore in depth. They wanted to know, 1 Nephi 15, 31-32 Doth this vision mean the torment of the body in the days of probation? Or doth it mean the final state of the soul after death of the temporal body? Or doth it speak of things which are temporal? In other words, is the verbal description of the place that our father saw literal or figurative? As Western thinkers, we are quick to assume that visions are figurative, filled with symbols that are not concrete. You must remember that the ancient Jews did not think this way. Therefore, Nephi's brothers suspected that this dream might describe an actual place, in whole or in part. They understood that it was possible to internalize symbols tangibly, in ways that you and I are just beginning to understand, as we rediscover how to be taught after the manner of the things of the Jews. Mark Nephi's answer very carefully. 1 Nephi 15.32 I said unto them that it was a representation of things both temporal and spiritual. A great big wow is in order. Nephi is saying that the vision was both. It was both real and symbolic at the same time. You should study his answer in more depth. But with this priceless key of knowledge in hand, let us go back and re-examine this important vision. Lehi sees a vast wasteland. I would propose to you that this description is not unlike the vast ocean floor. In this dreary wasteland, he saw vast multitudes of people milling about hopeless and lost. He also saw that direction was possible only to those who took hold of an iron rod that led men hand over fist through blinding darkness and filthy water until they came to a glorious tree filled with illuminescent fruit. Nephi would explain that this iron rod was the scriptures containing the promises of God to the children of men. He taught that lost in this darkness and sin, only those who refused to let go of the promises of God, despite the predicament in which they found themselves, were able to hold fast until they were able to partake of the salvation of God at the tree of life. Do you not hear Jonah's words here? Is this not Jonah's story retold? But there is more. In this same strange place, there was a magnificent building. It was described as both great and spacious. It was a building without foundation, like one that was built upon sand. It was filled with people 
and many were trying to make their way to it instead of trying to get to the tree of life. Nephi gives us a second insight. He tells his brethren that many of those within this great and spacious building would mock those who had found the joy of Christ. So great was their lying vanities that there were those who actually fell away from the truth by being too ashamed to withstand this mockery. Do you hear the echoes of Jonah's experience? It is one and the same story if you are unafraid to see it. It is my speculation that Jonah found himself dead in the realm of Satan's prison. There, his faith was tested by the demons and Satan's servants, speaking vanities and lies to those struggling to believe and or remember the teachings of the prophets. This is the same meaning of Jonah's otherwise meaningless statement when he returned alive. They who observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Modern prophets have told us that it takes just as much faith, and some have claimed even more so, to believe the gospel after death in the world of the dead, in spirit prison. Some have said it takes more faith there than it does here in mortal life. Jonah seems to be in agreement. His only hope was to cling to the iron rod of Scripture and remember the promises made by he who cannot lie. Jonah had to forcefully remind himself, Jonah 2.9, But I will sacrifice unto thee, my God, with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. I believe this last verse is a clever wordplay on the iron rod. It is the word of the Lord to his prophets, remembered, recorded, and preserved, both in holy writ and in the heart of man. The Lord has said that. Doctrine and Covenants 1.38 What I the Lord have spoken, I have spoken. My word shall not pass away, but shall all be fulfilled, whether by mine own voice or by the voice of my servants. It is the same. As a prophet himself, Jonah would have known this all too well. But pause for a moment. In remembering the Lord's promises, Jonah must have reflected on two things in his own mentorship at the hands of Elisha and his own experience at the hand of the Lord. Elisha in Hebrew means, The Lord is my salvation, and Jesus' name means Jehovah saves. These are the words that Jonah left us as a shield when all around him were lying vanities. He remembered his testimony, gained at the feet of Elisha, and his experiences under the hand of the Lord. There is nothing better to hold on to when in the midst of satanic confusion than the iron rod, with a memory of your temple vows, a voice of thanksgiving, the teachings of the prophets you have known, and the cry, Jesus saves. How many times have you come away from a general conference, a fast and testimony meeting, a personal scripture study session, or a family prayer, and been strengthened? The secret is to remember those moments when you are at your darkest. I suspect that a large part of the counsel of the prophets to keep a journal stems from this. It is easy to forget the truths that have tangibly burned in your heart when the doubts of darkness cloud your eyes. Going back and rereading your own testimony, recorded in spiritual fire, is a powerful witness of mercy given you frozen in time. It can frequently be the spark of rekindling that helps you remember and squeeze your fist a bit tighter upon the iron rod. 1 Nephi 15.34 But behold, I say unto you, the kingdom of God is not filthy, and there cannot any unclean thing enter into the kingdom of God. Wherefore, there must needs be a place of filthiness prepared for that which is filthy. And there is a place prepared, yea, 
even that awful hell of which I have spoken, and the devil is the preparator of it. Wherefore, the final state of the souls of men is to dwell in the kingdom of God, or to be cast out because of that justice of which I have spoken. Wherefore, the wicked are rejected from the righteous, and also from that tree of life, whose fruit is most precious and most desirable above all other fruit, yea, and it is the greatest of all the gifts of God. Nephi is quick to point out that hell is a real place. But the question before you and me is where exactly is it, and what does it actually look like? I believe that Nephi and Jonah gave us the answer. You know, this is incredible to see how the great and spacious building may actually be Lucifer's palace in the world of the dead, and how the very mockery that Father Lehi witnessed there is the same as the vain lying that Jonah saw. We have been on a wild ride, one that has taken us places that only Joseph Smith could have guessed. I hope you are beginning to see the amazing power of a true prophet of God. Truth is an amazing thing. It is so simplistic in its purity that it can be right and will remain right in whatever sphere it is found. If Joseph Smith was a true prophet of the Lord, in the same vein as any of the great prophets of old, we would expect to find his teachings holding fast, in strange and unexpected ways, to his predecessors. It is my hope that you have seen how even a simple book, at first glance anyway, like the book of Jonah, is added upon by the light of the Lord's restored gospel. The fact that we are able to learn infinitely more about Jonah's teachings and experiences through knowledge of the plan of salvation, restored to us by Joseph Smith and his modern successors in the high priesthood, should stand as a witness to all of the truthfulness of the Lord's work anciently and today. It is the same work and the same gospel because he is the same God, something that must give all men both reason to repent and reason to rejoice together. Jonah's book also gives us precedence and understanding of the role of the Holy Temple then and now. It stands as proof of God's mercy to his children from the start. He knew that many would come to earth and, due to no fault of their own, be denied the knowledge and blessing of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He prepared a way for them to have a chance to hear and accept it in the spirit world. Modern prophets have explained that when members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints die and pass into the world of the dead to await the resurrection, they are organized as missionaries to seek out their family, friends, and others where, like here, they preach the gospel to them that are dead just as Peter taught in the New Testament. 1 Peter 4, 6 For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they may be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. This is the real reason that Jesus, like Jonah, descended into the depths of hell, where he broke open the prison doors, ending death's permanency, and allowing those whose names are called out through priesthood power to exit, if they are willing to believe it is possible. 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19 For Christ, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Having explored these first two amazing chapters from the book of Jonah, we are halfway through. The remaining two chapters will not be as mind-bending as the first two, but they still hold a few surprises, as Jonah's mission was to call the greatest city of his day to repentance, the incredible city known as Nineveh the Great. Wow, what an amazing insight. I'll never be able to read Lehi's famous dream of the Tree of Life 
and not also think of Jonah and his second witness of his experience in the spirit world. Now, we've run out of time, but everyone, you can follow along with us in our gospel feast, Jonah and the Great Plan of Happiness. You can find it on Amazon. It's the second book in the set, Jonah and the Great Plan of Happiness. And as always, we thank all of you for feasting with us. And until our next podcast, may the Spirit of the Lord be with you. Thank you.